So we're going to be in John chapter 13 this morning. And uh, let me just open us up in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, just come before you this morning, Lord, to open your word, to just learn something about you, Heavenly Father. Lord, we're thankful that uh, we have you in our lives, that we have truth and grace, that in this time of turmoil in the world and in people's lives uh, individually, we can come and open your word and, and, and see you and have you shining in our, our hearts and our lives. And I'm just thankful for that, Lord. I just ask that you bless this time, Lord, that you open hearts and, and minds, Lord, to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I know for me, it's been what kind of brought me to this part of John. Um, it's been an emotional time, this, especially the last part of this year of people in our lives and uh, my life uh, becoming ill and passing away and and uh, it's it's a tough time and it's a time where um, even the best of us I think uh, when we're going through difficulties can uh, go before God and say you know what who are you really where are you really and uh, I don't know if you're going through that but uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that I think and uh I know for me it's been just very emotional, so I feel like I'm kind of walking on a thread lately with my emotions, and, and I just hope and pray that this message speaks to you in, in these times. Uh, one of Satan's greatest weapons is his vast, his vast arsenal of weapons uh, against the things of God is to attack the very nature of God himself, who he is. Make God out to be the bad guy often in our lives or in, in, the, in the big scheme of things. And right from the get-go in Genesis, Satan works on Eve and Adam, but Eve to question God's intentions and his motives. And since then, he's never let up. So what I want to do this morning is take this beginning of a new year and remind us of who God really is, what his character is, and what it isn't. And to do that the best way we can, what do we do? We look at Jesus. How do we know that? Because Jesus says so. In John uh, chapter 14, verse 8, uh, 8 and 9, really, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Can you guys hear me okay? All right. So Philip says, show me the Father. And Jesus says, do you know, not know me? It doesn't get much clearer than that. And then again in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It's equivalent to saying, know me, and you know the Father. And you know what? There's a lot of other places in the Bible we, we can go to and, and really see the nature of God displayed in and through Jesus. But for our purposes this morning, I want to share, if I can, two instances, these two instances in this chapter that speak to me personally. And uh, so let's start as this chapter opens in verse 1. 
we find the disciples and Jesus in this upper room, okay? They've secured this room for this last meal together. And there are some texts that say this wasn't the exact day of the Passover. Others say it is. Um, I honestly don't care. We get to just take this time and watch them come together for this great meal together. Um, We get to see the character of God living uh, in Jesus Christ at the end of his earthly ministry. And it's really quite something. So verse 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So first of all, we know Jesus' hour has come. Up to this point, you know what? Nobody, you know, when you read through Scripture, nobody could lay a hand on it because it wasn't his time. But now it's his time, and he knows what's coming. Yet look at what John writes. He loved them till the end. Do you grasp the weight of that? He loved them till the end. It's our first hit real taste of the character of God here. God is a God that loves right to the end. Satan would have you and I believe that when life is going badly, when things are looking bleak, God's love is maybe absent or distant, but it's not the case. It's a lie, and the enemy takes that lie and tries to make us to buy into it because he can, get us, he can get a bit of a foothold going in our lives. And then he takes that foothold and he can make it into a stronghold. You and I may have the weight of the world on our shoulders right now today, but God's love is not absent. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the character of God. And he desires only our rest. And that rest is in Christ. Verse 2 goes on to say, During supper, when the devil had already put, in, uh, put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. You know what? There's some important verses here. Why? Because they remind us of the all-encompassing authority of Jesus. It's important for us to know this uh, this for a lot of reasons, but today, in this lesson... Jesus is about to do something that's on a human level would be considered, you know what, a pretty big deal, especially in that, in that culture. Quite an amazing act of humility and servitude, but on a spiritual level, it's beyond astonishing. I'm just going to reread verses 4 and 5, or read verses 4 or 5. Um, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, in John's uh, beginning of John's account in this gospel, if you go right to the beginning, he gives us a description of Jesus. 
this description as the second head of the Trinity. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So think about that just for a minute. And now back to this upper room where Jesus is facing the end of his earthly life and the end of his earthly ministry. This same Jesus who set aside his Godhead for a time is going around the room from disciple to disciple performing what is considered one of the lowest acts of human service period in those days. In that, cul- in that culture, it was, a truly, it was truly considered um, disgusting to scrub someone's feet, especially with your own bare hands. Why? Because, you know, the kind of muck and mire they had collected from streets and roads. You know, in my, in my work, um, I do massage, deep tissue massage therapy and whatnot, along with Calvin. Calvin and I work together. But you get people in where you, you have to work on their feet, and usually it's not a bad, too big, big a deal. But I've had instances years ago where people have come in, and I got to tell you, <laughs> it was the most vile thing I've ever had to work on. Just the, I can't even describe it to you, but it was, it was not a nice thing to have to do, but I had to do it. It was just part of my job. Now, because of the offensive nature in this culture of this job, the foot-washing slave or servant was regarded as the lowest form of human life on earth. So now think about that and the fact that this is God incarnate. And I think this is amazing. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. The creator and sustainer of all things is taking the position of the lowest human life on earth. And it doesn't stop there. In this Middle Eastern culture, the bottom of the foot, and you may have read this, is considered the absolute filthiest part of the body. And so to even expose it, to even turn it up to expose it to someone, to another person, especially on purpose, is considered an outrage, an absolute outrage. Any respectable master would never assign the job of washing feet to anyone above the status of a dog. Are you starting to see the magnitude of what Jesus is doing here? And he hasn't even gotten to the cross yet. If you're sitting here today questioning God's love for you, if you're questioning God's commitment to you, if you find yourself frustrated, a little angry, what seems like a lack of his grace or mercy in your life, just look at Jesus here. He is destined for the cross, the worst and lowest form of punishment, yet he doesn't dwell on himself but lowers himself even further and in doing so shows us another remarkable character of our heavenly Father. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And here he is and he stoops to the lowest of lows to serve and to love these guys. And if he doesn't do it for them, and if he, pardon me, if he does do it for them, 
He does it for you, and he does it for me. He's the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Our Father in heaven is the same God who humbles himself right here to wash the dirty, disgusting feet of these disciples. And not because they're deserving of it. Just look at these guys for a minute. Luke says in his account that they all entered this room. When they came into this situation, they were debating among themselves who was the greatest. People looking to be the greatest aren't going to stoop to the level of a dog. How arrogant, how prideful. Yet, Emmanuel bends and he washes their feet. They're all going to abandon him in the next few hours. Jesus knows they're going to abandon him. Yet, Emmanuel kneels and washes their feet. One of them is going to betray him in in just a short while, yet Emmanuel loves him and washes his feet. One of them was going to deny him three times, yet Jesus acknowledges him and washes his feet. If that doesn't speak to all of us about God's character, I don't know what will. Now, verses 6 to 8. It says, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what, am, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So what does that mean? Well, I think Peter's a little rattled here. I think the rest of the disciples are going to be a little rattled here. They know what Jesus is doing. They have a concept of the culture. They know how low he's bending. How can they not be a little rattled? And like any of us would be, he's probably conflicted, and he's probably convicted. I know what goes on in my head when I see somebody performing a service I wouldn't even consider doing myself. especially if it's someone I know deep down is a better Christian than I am. I feel, feel pretty convicted. It's a kick in my pants. You have to wonder if Jesus' parable about the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20, 16, came flooding back to him. Remember where Jesus said, the last will be first? I wonder if Peter thought about that. Oh. Or in verse, uh, Matthew verse 20, 27, where Jesus tells the disciples, whoever, be first, whoever would be first among you must be your servant. I wonder if Peter's battling with his pride a little right now. If maybe he sees a missed opportunity to stand out as top disciple. Because, you know what? He could have chosen to wash some feet. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. But considering what we know about the status of a foot washer, I have to think Peter is generally trying to do what he thinks is right with, when Jesus comes to him and, he, and says, no, I don't want you to wash my feet. Perhaps he's seeing, you know what, the, thinking, you know what, the other guys messed up. They messed up and they allowed Jesus to do this, but I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to allow him to do this. Now, Jesus says two things here that we need to pay attention to, I think. First, he says to Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now, 
but after you, afterward, you will understand. We know that this lesson, um, if you're up on your Bible, we know that this lesson did stick with Peter because decades later, he wrote about humility in such a way as he alluded to this very moment. But Jesus' statement here goes way beyond that. It goes beyond this moment that we're reading about. And it's really a message that speaks into your life and into my life and that should speak into the lives of every believer if we're listening. There will always be times in our lives that we are going to be without understanding. I certainly have spent a lot of time without understanding. We don't always know in the moment what God is doing or why he's doing it. He even explains to us in Isaiah 55, verse 8, that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But I think I can say with this, uh, say this with really kind of an unwavering confidence that without exception, there will always, always come a time. Sometimes it's right away. Sometimes it isn't. But nonetheless, inevitably, a time comes that God will make known to you and to me the what and the why. We just have to be patient and pray and wait. Sometimes we've got to wait for our whole lifetime to pass. But sooner or later, the reasons are going to be made clear. What I am doing, you do not understand right now, but afterward, you will understand. Trust that. We need to trust that. Now, Jesus has this second statement here in verse 8 that we need to pay attention to. It says, if I... If I do not wash you, you have no share or part with me. You know what? We all need the cleansing of Jesus Christ in our lives. We need to be reconciled back to God, and that's how we we get reconciled. Christ, we accept him into our hearts. We're washed. We're cleaned. There is this deep spiritual significance here to what Jesus is saying. But I also think that this is about just exactly what it's about here, which is allowing Jesus to be Jesus. What do I mean? Well, to tell him, as Peter does here, not to wash my feet. And you can put in anything you want in here. No, Jesus. You're not going to do this. You can add any act of grace or service of love you want in here that Jesus is trying to work into your life that you might be fighting back against, holding on to something that you shouldn't be holding on to. And Jesus is trying to work in it. But you're saying, no, I'm not going to have you washing me here, Jesus. Not going to do it. To say no to the things Jesus wants to do for you and wants to do for me is to deny Jesus. And when we deny Jesus, we're denying God. I'm not saying it's a salvation issue, but on a level you're, you're denying. 
How can we truly have a share with Jesus if we're busy stifling who He is in our lives, what He's trying to do, or who He wants to be in your life and my life? And isn't that what Peter is doing here? I don't think he's doing it on purpose. I don't think he's thought it out that way. But he does nonetheless. There can be so much pride in denying, involved in denying service to ourselves, whether it's from Jesus or fellow believers. It's hard to believe you can, there, there can actually be pride around that, but there can. Almost uh, as often as, as there is in the act of serving itself. And it's something to think about. Now, Peter goes on to say in verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I think this is a great lesson. It's a great lesson uh, for Peter. It's a great lesson for you. It's a great lesson for me because what Peter does here is he tries to take what Jesus is trying to do and not only kind of control it, but he's trying to expand on it I can make this. You can, I can make this better for you, Jesus. What you're trying to do here? Let's crank it up a notch. Making it something it isn't even meant to be. Suddenly, this act of humility and servitude has the potential of becoming really more about Peter. I know Jesus washed you guys' feet. And and he did a great job. Look at how clean your feet is. But look what else I got, fellas. Look what I got. I got a more more thorough cleansing. You see how that can just be kind of that little bump up? Peter may have asked this innocently, but the consequences, consequences could have caused issues for the other disciples. It could have caused issues, honestly, through history in the Bible, if you think about it. We're all aware of the lengths people will go to to stand above others, even in the church, to think they're better, look like they're better. Uh, look what I got you didn't get. We do it with, uh, with the gifts. You know, I... I just I have a great gift of gifts of help helps it. Um, oh well, personally I've got the gift of healing. Um, you know what? I'm thankful when I read this that Jesus graciously shut this request down. Now, how does he do it? Verse ten, he says, "The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean." And you are clean. Simple message here is that once you're clean, you're clean. Revel in that. Stop trying to do it over and over again. The cleansing power of the gospel is once for all. We all need refreshing. I know I do. We all need some renewal. Get away from the dirt of the world to get cleansed from that, but we don't need to crucify Christ over and over again in our lives or in someone else's. It turns the power of God's grace into religion. 
Jesus' message is to just continue to serve one another, but to do it with the right heart, heart of Christ. Now we go into verses where Jesus is beginning to hint to these guys about the upcoming betrayal. In the end of verse 10, he says, but not every one of you. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? I get to that verse, and I think, well, here we go. We just talked about Remember that understanding. Sooner or later, the understanding comes. They're right away, maybe a little bit later. Well, you know what? Here it is. You didn't have to wait very long. And Jesus delivers the understanding. Verses 13 to 17. So he says, do you, un- do you understand what I have done, done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus has just taken this position of the lowliest human being on the face of the earth in the eyes of this culture, And now he says, I've given you an example. And he says, guess what? You're not better than me. And listen to this. Nor am I better than the Father. Wow, that just kind of brings everybody together, doesn't it? God, the Father, is a washer of feet. If this doesn't stir you up and plant a picture of the character of God we serve, then again, I don't know what will. If you need to find a reason to love God today, that ought to do it. It takes love out of the realm of any uh, coming to church and saying, you know what, I, I have to. You know what, I'm commanded to. And it puts it into this, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I love God? This is the character of God toward you and I, and it's so humble and thoughtful and giving that its purpose really is to actually spontaneously generate love in you and me for God. Because really, how could we feel anything else? We are the children. You are a child of the God who washes feet. And now we know what that means from the perspective of this Jewish or Mideastern culture. You know what? The pains of this world aren't God's doing. He gets the blame a lot, but they're not His doing. He knows we go through them. But the fact is, it all started in the garden without him. It started with us and Satan. 
It cost us because God was left out. Really, if we want to be angry about it, the human condition, our human condition, then we need to direct it where it belongs. God is the God of rescue. He's the God of washing, of love to the end. You know, as I get older, between the job that I do and, and everything else, my body, I feel sometimes it's just falling apart. It really is. I'm sore. I ache. I'm wearing out. But not because of God, but in spite of God. Thankfully, he's cleansed me, and every day he uses his word and his spirit, and he washes my feet. And all he asks is that I take his example for me and work with him to wash a few feet for him. And in case you were wondering, it's not actually about washing feet. It doesn't even mean the same thing in our culture. It's a nice gesture. You know, I, I know some churches have their foot washing times. We, we oh, well, I don't think that's ever been done here, but it hasn't at our church. Um, it's a nice gesture if you feel the need to do it, but it's not even in the same ballpark with what Jesus is referring to here. I can't tell you, I can't sit here and tell you what your foot washing is going to look like through your life when you're going out and demonstrating it. But I can tell you, when God puts you in a position to serve in that kind of a manner, you're going to know it. You're going to know it. You'll have that foot washing epiphany and know that God is pleased right now. Now, starting in verse 18, Jesus reveals some prophetic truths to these guys. He says, I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom, who, I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and has lifted his heel against me. Pardon me, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. What happens when we lift our heel? And we just talked about it. We expose the bottom of our foot. Now we know that the status of the foot in that culture, we talked about it. So what do you think it means in that culture to expose the bottom of your foot to someone? Well, it shows contempt and it shows disdain. And that is what Jesus is saying is the mind of the one who will betray him. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Verse 19 to 21, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I think Jesus wants these guys for sure and us for sure to know that there are no surprises. Not here, not anywhere. When it comes to God, everything 
points to him as the Christ. Even that betrayal points to him as Christ. It's easy to look at circumstances uh, in our own lives, look at the world today, and think that God's lost, he's lost control. He's out of the loop. That he doesn't see that one coming. You ever thought that? Oh, ooh, God didn't see that coming. But God sees it all. He's always in control, even when things look dark to you and me. And he always gives us just enough information to keep us believing in him. All we have to do is just open up his word, and we can see just glimpses of the future that he's laid out for us as believers, just like we see here. Now, in verse 21, Jesus makes it clear to everyone in the room that one of them is a betrayer. And we can imagine the stunned looks of confusion that's going on with these guys. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Disciples look at, each, look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loves was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, I want to paint for you a little bit of a picture of what this looks like, okay? So you see kind of what's going on here. Now, first, we need to note that they aren't sitting around a table the way you and I would sit around a table. I think you know that. Nor was it like it's portrayed in the painting that da Vinci does where they're all sitting and lined up on one side of a table. These tables were actually in the shape of a U, okay? And they were called a tri triclinium. Everybody sat around the outside of the table allowing the servants to work in the center. The open end, open the end of that U, okay, if it was toward you, always faced an entry door. So there would be an entry door there. So it actually, if it was in here, it would face this way. Now, how do we know for sure this is the kind of table they used? Okay? Well, there's clues in, in Luke, and there's other historic writings that suggest it, and I'm not going to go into that today. You just have to trust. That's the, the type of table that they're sitting at. Now, when I say they sat... That's not really the case. They actually reclined. They stretched out on cushions, leaning on their left arms and their left side, okay? Their feet were always to the wall because you wanted the feet as far from the food as possible. We know that they're disgusting. Each person faced the back of the person beside them. So everybody would be on their left side all the way around the table. Everybody's all facing one way. They always ate with the right hand only, okay? Now, people could roll onto both elbows uh, so they could see people better and have conversations a little bit easier with other guests if they wanted. And that would make it easier to chat with your neighbor or whatever. It was really quite an intimate, joyous affair. Now, where you sat or lounged at this table was a big deal. 
In those days, it was a big deal. And three of these disciples are in interesting places, okay? Peter, if the U is shaped this way, Peter's over here. Most humbling spot you can be given. And you can bet he was given that place. It's the place of least important importance. And it's behind, uh, which is behind and to the left of the host. Now, Jesus is the most, uh, no, pardon me, John, is in the most trusted position. He's, his back is to the host, which is Jesus, and he has an eye on the door. So Jesus would have been on his left, John's here. Traditionally, it's the position of the protector or the guard. And in the position of honor, which is behind Jesus, is none other than Judas himself. I read that and I think that to me is amazing because Jesus sat him there or lied him there or placed him there. He placed the betrayer in the highest position of honor right behind him. Judas is lounging behind Jesus. So now you, let's, let's go back to this scene. And Peter motions to one of Jesus' disciples whom Jesus loved in the most trusted seat, who was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So this disciple, John, leans back. Against Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? You get the picture a little bit? Verse 26, Jesus says, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Jesus, the son of, of Simon Iscariot. I don't know about you, but when I read this, it's pretty clear to me about who the betrayer is is. It's laid out. So why don't the disciples get it? What are they missing? Why the confusion? Nobody's jumping up and running over to Judas, giving him a shake or holding him back. None of the above. Verse 27 says, then after he had taken the morsel, Judas, Satan entered into him. Not a minion, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. So again, no one seems to know what the heck's going on here, except Jesus and Judas. The disciples think Jesus is sending him to get more food or give to the poor. So what's the deal? Well, it goes back to where Judas is at the table in this place of honor. And Jesus, as the host, I said, would have personally placed him there. Secondly, Judas holds a highly trusted position. He's the keeper of the money. If he was a thief, no one knew it but Jesus and himself. But there's also a third reason why they couldn't fathom Judas's Judas as the betrayer here. And I think this is so amazing. 
Remember, Jesus said to the betrayer, the betrayer was the one he would give the morsel of bread to after he had dipped it. And the truth is, in that culture, you would never put bread into the mouth of your enemy, ever. Why? Because it's an act of great honor. What Jesus did with Judas here was unheard of if he were the enemy. He was the enemy. But to the disciples watching this, you don't do this to the enemy. You don't. By placing the bread in Judas's mouth, Jesus was saying by that very action, and listen to this, you are my brother, Judas, and I would gladly lay down my life for you. That's amazing. Remember that Jesus taught love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Jesus was symbolically saying to Judas the betrayer, you are my friend, though I do not seem to be yours. I honor you and I esteem you, though I hate what, you, what you're about to do. I love you and I forgive you. That's the God that we serve. This is how to treat an enemy. How do you? How do I? Many say, lots of people often say, well, you know what? I love them in the Lord. Ah, you know what? I love him in the Lord. But rarely has an emptier phrase passed through a Christian's lips. There are many instances in the Bible that show the love of Christ at work. There are few that speak to me as strongly as these two, as this washing of feet and the feeding of a betrayer with one dipped piece of bread. I wanted to start this new year with something for each of us to, to kind of lean on when we are in those times of questioning God's character. Does he really love me? Is he really paying attention? What is he really all about? Well, the answer to those types of questions is now and always has been in the person of Jesus Christ. What's the Father, li what's the father like? Just look at Jesus. Look at his words. Look at his deeds. He preferred and still prefers forgiveness over condemnation. He is merciful to those in all manner of pain. He hates hypocrisy and loves humility. As we have just witnessed, he welcomes those who are honest about who they are and who he is. He does amazing works, and he encourages you and I, his followers, to do exactly the same. As he said, I have given you an example. I don't think we should assume to know what a good Christian looks like unless we are basing it solely on the model that Jesus lays before us right here. In both of these situations we have talked about this morning, Jesus has put himself out there as our example. And what an example. To be duplicated in your life, in my life, towards others. That's what a true disciple is. It's a duplicate, a copy. Jesus doesn't train us toward our own objects, objectives, 
doesn't train us toward a comfortable life that's going to be free of pain with a just above average morality. We should expect to be trained for something far greater. Train for the battles today, whether they're personal and the glory tomorrow. But along the way, we need to remember God's character. He's always for us. He's never against us. If he washed Judas's feet and fed him the bread, and he was the enemy, how much is he going to do, and how far will he go for you and I, who are his sons and daughters? Let's take that into this new year. Now, as I pray this, uh, to close us out here, I'll invite the worship team. They're going to come back up, I think, and do another song. And uh, I'll just move aside and let you guys set up. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just give thanks, Lord, that you are such a gracious, loving, wonderful God. Lord, that you are the one that washes our feet even when we don't deserve it. You're the one that uh, feeds, feeds us the bread even when we're acting like the enemy. Lord, the things that you do, the things that you have done, the character you have should cause us to come running to you, crying out our love. There is nothing about you that is dark, evil. There's nothing about you that is trying to come against us and make our lives miserable, Lord. We're battling misery because of, of what we did so many years ago in the garden. But Lord, you offer us something greater. A time down the road, Lord, where we will spend eternity with you in your presence, and we just glorify you for that. Heavenly Father, we just give thanks and we just ask as we raise this last song to you, Lord, that you speak to each one of us in our hearts your glory and your wonders. In Jesus' name, amen.